Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And, you know, I wanted to talk about the coronavirus and the need for a national health care system. And we'll also get into the economy and, and, and pretty much, you know, anything else you want to talk about today. There's, there's a lot going on in the news. Pete Buttigieg has pulled out of the race. And the speculation that I'm seeing is that he's going to endorse Joe Biden, presumably on the idea that if, well, I mean, who knows? But my personal guess would be, I'll endorse you, Joe Biden. You make me defense secretary. And I think Pete Buttigieg would actually make a very good defense secretary. But who knows? We'll see. But as the coronavirus is spreading around the world, we find ourselves, the United States finds ourselves as literally the only country in the world without a national health care system that can confront it. I mean, ever since Franklin Roosevelt first proposed a national single payer health care system, actually, it was Teddy Roosevelt who first proposed. He was a Republican. The first Democrat to propose it was Franklin Roosevelt. And then Harry Truman actually proposed it, you know, tried to put it into law. And then John Kennedy campaigned for this. We played the clip of that last week. And then LBJ started the process with Medicare and Medicaid. And Robert Ball, the guy who wrote the Medicare law, said explicitly, clearly, unambiguously, it's in my book, Rebooting the American Dream, the whole long thing about it, uh, where Robert Ball said, we designed Medicare to be scalable. We were going to start with people over 65. And then, you know, every year we could drop it by 10 years down to 55 and then down to 45 and then 35 and, and you know over a period of a decade we would have everybody in the country covered by medicare it was designed that way from the beginning and hubert humphrey was talking about doing that you know expanding medicaid and medicare excuse me but ever since then ever since that start well actually i mean you can go all the way back to social security republicans have said no They've said this is socialism. It's a terrible thing. They wanted to maintain the profits for their banksters who run the, the health insurance companies, you know, instead of allowing Americans to have the safety and security of knowing that they can go to the doctor without going broke. And I mean, the biggest danger that we face right now, in my humble opinion, with regard to the combination, this very toxic combination of, of having a for-profit healthcare system and having a disease out there that spreads like the common cold, but has a 2% mortality rate, and we're not really sure the exact numbers and how it's going to play out in the developed world. We have Chinese numbers, but you know, somewhere between a 5 and 15% hospitalization rate. The biggest danger we have right now is that those people who have the minimal symptoms, that 80% of people who get the coronavirus and don't even realize that they have the coronavirus, they just think they have a cold, that they're going to be spreading it to other people and it's going to become ubiquitous. I mean, it's entirely possible that what we are looking at here is simply a return to the old normal. When Franklin Roosevelt was a kid, he got polio. When my wife's grandmother was a kid, she got polio. Her left arm was, you know, pretty unusable all her life. And, and Franklin Roosevelt couldn't walk. I mean, it just happened. There was, no, there was no vaccine against polio. There was no cure for polio. Before that, it was tuberculosis. We had sanatoriums, but we had no drug to treat it. And so you could slow down the progression of the disease, but you know, people died from tuberculosis. 
Um, when Edgar Allan Poe lived in New York City back in the mid-1800s, New York City was having a typhoid epidemic. And it was because their water system has, was contaminated by their sewer system. And, you know, they thought it was bad air. It was the vapors, right? And so Edgar Allan Poe fled to upstate New York. I believe, uh, I could be misremembering this because this is from high school days, but I believe that Lenore, you know, the woman that he wrote the poem about, had died in that typhoid epidemic. But whatever it may be, I mean, this used to be how it was for the human race. If you got a bad scratch, 1% of the time, it would become septic and you'd die. If you, this is before antibiotics. If you got polio, well, you know, some people died from it. Most people were disabled by it. If you got tuberculosis, you got pulled out of the pot. You know, the only thing we had for that was isolation. You got put in a sanatorium. And, and the poor people suffered far more than the, than the wealthy people. And back in the 1880s, in, uh, under these kind of circumstances, the government of Germany decided, you know, we really need to have a national health care system. And the first single-payer national health care system was put into place in the 1880s in Germany. And it's now spread all over the world, except here in the United States. So to go back to this, I mean, if, if this ends up being like the common cold that is seasonal, and, you know, yes, I know Trump said it's going to go away in the summer. Well, actually, he might be right. This is, you know, coronaviruses tend to peak during the winter and diminish during the summer. The common cold being the most common one. And there's dozens of varieties of coronaviruses that are the common cold. They're the corona A category of viruses. But if this becomes the new normal, and in particular, if it turns out that there are a couple of antiviral drugs that actually can prevent people from dying from this coronavirus disease, and they're doing these tests with these things. The first case, this, is, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is this piece that I, I was telling you my daughter, nurse practitioner, shared with me over the weekend. It's titled, First Case of 2019 Novel Coronavirus in the United States. And, and they, they document how this person, this was up in the Seattle area, as, as I recall. And this was the first confirmed case in the United States. It started on January 19th, 2020. 35-year-old man presented at an urgent care clinic in Snohomish County, Washington, with a four-day history of cough and fever. And they go through the whole thing. He started to deteriorate, and he developed pneumonia. And so they put him on IV antibiotics to knock out the pneumonia. Plus, they had, they had him on 650 milligrams of acetaminophen every four hours, 600 milligrams of ibuprofen every six hours, 600 milligrams of gaifenesin, which is, uh, you know, for his, his cough. And then they were giving him saline. This is six days into the hospitalization. And then his liver starts behaving weird, and you've got all these numbers, you know, the ALKFOS and whatnot. And everything starting to look bad, right? Because, the, and I'm looking at the x-rays here. So what did they do? They finally gave him, and it was called a you know compassionate care. I'm looking for the name of the drug here. They gave yeah, at a period consistent with the development of radiographic pneumonia in this patient, clinicians pursued compassionate use of an investigational antiviral therapy treatment with intravenous remdesivir, a novel nucleotide analog prodrug in development, was initiated on the evening of day seven. No adverse effects were observed in association with the infusion. The vancomycin, the, the antibiotics for his pneumonia, were discontinued that night. And on day eight, the, condition, the patient's clinical condition improved. Supplemental oxygen was discontinued. His oxygen, oxygen saturation values improved to 94 to 96% while he was breathing ambient air, which is normally breathing. And the uh, lower lobe rails were no longer present. His appetite improved. He was asymptomatic outside of an intermittent dry cough and runny nose, basically. And as of January 30th, 2020, the patient remains hospitalized, but he is afebrile. He's, in other words, he's, he's, he's able to get around. His symptoms are resolved. He's just a little weak. So they're trying out some of these drugs. And, and frankly, I think this is the most likely outcome that we're going to have is that 
you know, for the people who get seriously ill, we will develop antiviral drugs that will knock this out. We did it with AIDS. They have found that there are some antiviral drugs that are actually effective against Ebola. Now, Ebola is much, you know, more rigorous a disease, and, and these drugs are not anywhere near as effective as, you know, 100%. But drugs are being developed. Whether or not a vaccine will work, vaccines, you know, they've been trying to come up with vaccines for the common cold forever. And it doesn't seem to, you know, it's been a real challenge. But, but basically, I think we're going to get to the point, we're probably within a year, where even if this becomes a persistent thing that comes back every year like the flu, we will be able to deal with it. But then the question is, are we going to deal with it the Republican way, which is rich people who can afford the $5,000 deductible and can go to the hospital are going to get the treatment and poor people who can't are going to die, which is how it is right now with, you know, lots of diseases. I mean, you know, you saw the study that, that uh, Yale University did that was published in the, uh, in the uh, British medical journal Lancet, where they said that a Medicare for All program in the United States would save 68,000 lives. Now, some of those, you when you dig into the study, some of those lives were being saved by early diagnosis. You know, people presenting with, uh, you know, a, a lump that is cancer when it's still isolated to the lump, you know, before it's metastasized. So that, that was a good chunk of them. And I don't have the study in front of me. I don't have the exact numbers here, so I'm not going to just throw numbers out. But, but the other part of it was that, you know, people are postponing care for things like pneumonia, you know, respiratory infections. And then they end up getting sick and dying, you know, with, without going to the hospital or they get to the hospital and it's basically too late. Why? Because of money, because of this Republican health care system. So, uh, you know, I mentioned this guy in Florida who uh, had just come back from, from China, went to the hospital to get himself tested. It cost him over $3,000. It's like, wait a minute. I mean, the Republican efforts to maintain profits for the health insurance industry are literally putting us all at risk. And it's time to have Medicare for all. This is a national security issue, and particularly as we're facing the possibility that we're going to have recurrent seasonal infections of something that actually has the, the potential, not just to make people really sick, but to kill people. Now, of course, the flu does that, as we know. You know we've all learned 35,000 people a year die from the flu. A lot of those are you know, people who are dying. You know, some of them are people who are really sick to begin with. Some of them, they're just not seeking care soon enough. Why? Because our health care system's all screwed up. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's time to say, you know, healthcare should not be a profit center for banksters, as in health insurance companies. It should be the way we treat people. Patricia in Portage, Wisconsin, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? Okay, I'm usually calling about trying to end slaughterhouses and help animals, but mm-hmm. this virus came out of the wildlife markets in China. Correct. And that means it came out of a mammal, and it has jumped the species barrier to humans. Why can't it jump the human species barrier back to cows, pigs, chickens in feedlots? Or it may be able in- to, Patricia. I mean, this, uh, you know. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Flu is carried by birds and by pigs. And in fact, the flu break outbreak of 1919 came out of a pig farm in Kansas, as best we can tell. So, you know, it's, it's not impossible that this virus could move back and forth between humans and other animals. Yeah, imagine if it goes to a feedlot, nose to nose, they're all over the place, you know, crammed yeah. in, and right. then they go through and they're mashed into hamburgers by the thousands of animals per hamburger. 
and it goes out to the public. I mean, well, I by then, the, by then, you know, I mean, we cook meat, you know, and we disinfect meat and things. I, you know, I don't, okay. I don't see that as much of a problem, but you know, the possibility that it might mutate into a more virulent form inside of our, you know, I mean, I'm with you, Patricia. I think that our, our commercial factory farming, in quotes, of animals is, is brutal and is a public health menace. And, right. and when you add the, the high levels of antibiotics that are being given to these animals, I mean, we know, for example, you know, the uh, H, I think it's H157 form of E. coli, the fecal bacteria that kills people, you know, shuts down their kidneys. You know, mm -hmm. that came out of feedlots. That came out of, in, you know, industrial animal agriculture. It literally didn't exist before the 1980s or maybe the 1970s. You know, people used to eat steak tartare and they used to put raw eggs in, you know, in with their orange juice and put it in the blender in the morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, my wife's father, my father-in-law, has now passed away, but he used to do both those things. You know, he'd put an egg in his orange juice every morning. You can't do that anymore because now you've, you've, got, you've got these pathogens that have that have, uh, you know, been subjected to uh, antibiotics over and over and over and over again in these feedlots and have developed not only antibiotic resistance, but also have become more destructive. So we've already seen this, and we really well, need to be reconsidering this. You know, sometimes the manure of these animals goes on to lettuce and other things that aren't sure. cooked. Yeah, and th this is one of the ways that we end up with these E. coli and salmonella infections in our food, in our vegetables, you know. The, well, it yeah, concerns absolutely. me about the coronavirus because it came out of mammals, mm -hmm. other mammals. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, if some guy out in a feedlot passes it on to a cow. Yeah, yeah my, my, my concern there would be that it mutates in ways, I mean, you know, again, we're building the case, I think, Patricia, to have a national health care system. I'm you know? all with you. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie, and, go Bernie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And to eat a whole heck of a lot fewer animal products. I mean, you know, if we all dialed back on eating animal products, like, you know, most of the history of the human race, animal products were not central to diet. They were basically, you know, spices, essentially. If we were to do that, we would save a lot of lives. We would, you know, animals' lives, and we would save a lot of human lives. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Oh, this is mind-boggling. This uh, Hiroko Tabuchi, writing in the New York Times, an official at the Interior Department, embarked on a campaign that has inserted misleading language about climate change, including debunked claims that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is beneficial, have put misleading language about climate change into the agencies, the Interior Departments, scientific reports, according to documents reviewed by the New York Times. The misleading language appears in at least nine different reports, including environmental studies and impact statements on major watersheds in the American West that could be used to justify allocating increasingly scarce water to farmers at the expense of wildlife conservation and fisheries. The effort was led by Inder M. Gokleny, a longtime Interior Department employee who, in 2017, near the start of the Trump administration, was promoted to the office of the Deputy Secretary with responsibility for reviewing the agency's climate policies. You know, evolution has not prepared plants for CO2 levels to go from, you know, roughly 300 parts per million to over 400 parts per million. We've, we've seen a 25% increase in CO2 levels in the atmosphere, you know, basically in my lifetime. And this is not, you know, evolution has not prepared us for this. And, you know, so then the New York Times reaches out to the Interior Department and they say, oh, you need to talk to the Bureau of Reclamation, which oversees the nation's dams and water resources. Uncertainty is a part of climate modeling, as it is with all scientific modeling, says the Interior Department. Right. We need Medicare for all if we're going to deal with this, and we need it now, number one. And number two, we need to get science back into the administration. On the line with us is our old buddy Greg Pallast of gregpallast.com and the investigative reporter and writing for The Guardian and everything else. Hey, Greg, welcome back to the program. Hey, glad to be with you, Tom. It's an important day, and we got a big story coming out in The Guardian. Okay, so tell us about it. Well, it looks like California's very, very strange system of voting 
could shaft Bernie Sanders out of half a million votes, and by the way, Mike Bloomberg out of a third of a million votes, by rules set up by the Democratic National Committee in California and enforced by Alex Padilla, who is campaigning hard for Joe Biden. So um, the way that the California voting system is set up in the primaries here is going to really disqualify a whole lot of votes by Sanders and some by uh, Bloomberg as well. How do you disqualify voters for, you know, for example, if you didn't pick a, uh, a party, you know, or isn't it if you didn't pick a party, you'll get a ballot that doesn't have the presidential candidate on it? Or, or Yes. Okay, here's the problem. We have five million Five million California residents who register as independents. That is what they call here NPP, no party preference. Right, thank you. Now, if you register as no party preference, now remember, it turns out about 86% of these people, uh, about 57%, want to vote in the Democratic primary, which is their right by law. That is, if you're an independent, you can vote in the Democratic Party. But good luck trying. So, that's because the, if you get a ballot yeah. by mail, your ballot doesn't have the primary on it. It doesn't have Democratic or Republican candidates. So my understanding That's from right. our conversations in Los Angeles two weekends ago is that what you have to do is bring that ballot with you to the polls and then right there, you know, turn that ballot in and uh, unmarked and say, I want to get rid of this and I want to register as a Democrat right now so I can vote in the Democratic primary. Isn't that There's right? two things you can do. Can you see these two ballots? One says Democratic right. on it, Democratic, official Democratic ballot. Right. And then the other one says Democratic crossover ballot. So here's what you have to do. You have to go in and take your NPB ballot, if you're one of the, the four million who got that ballot without any of the presidential candidates, and we know most of you want to vote in the Democratic primary, according to the polls in California, uh, take in your NPP ballot, include the envelope, and ask for the Democratic crossover ballot. Now, here's the weird thing, Tom. According to Secretary of State Padilla, the word has gone out to all poll workers that unless you know the magic word crossover ballot, they can't give you the crossover ballot. They can't give you the Democratic Party ballot. Now, again, if you're an independent voter, there are five million of you, four million of you got the ballot right. without any. Uh, I, I get all this, candidate. Greg, but I don't see how this, you know, screws Bernie any more than it does Joe Biden. Oh, plenty, because it turns out that Bernie is gigantically ahead by at least two to one over Joe Biden among independent voters who uh, want to vote in the Democratic Party. I see. It also shafts, frankly, Mike Bloomberg out of about 300,000 votes, they, they'll figure, by independents who want to vote for Bloomberg, much less than Bernie. Mm. This is because young people, especially students, tend to register without a party preference. Same with Latinos, who are, the, these are the heavy Bernie this is a heavy Bernie Democratic, young uh, demographic. Mm -hmm. It's the young people and Latino voters, Latinx voters. And we figure Bernie will lose about 553,000 votes this way. You have to understand, according to the uh, key pollsters, which is like Political Data Inc., which does the polling for both Democrats and Republicans, most people really, truly, who are independent, really want to vote in the Democratic primary, but don't know how. They don't know how to change that ballot for one with the candidates on them. And they don't even know that they have the right to do that. They get this ballot without the candidates. They go, where's Bernie? And he ain't there. Right. So there's two ways. I want to repeat this. Take in your NPP ballot into the polling station with the envelope and say, I want, and you've got to use the magic word, I want a crossover Democratic ballot. Because mm -hmm. they won't tell you the word. They can't by law. Crossover Democratic Party ballot or say, I want to re-register today, which is one thing you can do for the first time in California. You can register for one day as a Democrat. And I'm not telling you to register as a Democrat, but if you want to vote in the Democratic primary and you're having problems, re-register on the spot as a Democrat for the day. It doesn't mean you have to vote whatever you want in the general, but it allows you the Democratic ballot today, only is, in California. Is there going to be any effort to change this, Greg? Well, uh, no. Secretary of State, our little Catherine Harris, Brian Kemp, Alex Padilla, is a uh, is campaigning for Joe Biden. You know the, the party is well, right. Yeah, I mean, well, no, you know what? Here's the problem. 
Why do we have elections officials, whether it's Brian Kemp, who's a Republican running for office, Catherine Harris, who ran the Bush campaign, why do we have partisan officials in charge of voting in America? This is like nuts. But whatever, this is what we're stuck with. So you have to protect your own vote. I don't see it changing in California at all. The, The party is truly hostile to the 5 million voters who say, I want to vote in the Democratic primary, but I don't want to join the Democratic Party. Right. And, and so they're very hostile to that group. And, and, and frankly, if you really want to vote in the Democratic primary, your safest bet is simply to register as a Democrat. This yes. doesn't require your Democratic vote, but it allows you a kind of easy way to get that full ballot. Well, and I think you can actually make a case for closed primaries because being a member of the party and voting in the party's primaries, is it's like being a member of a club. I mean, you know, you, you have some loyalty to that club. You've put some effort into that club, or, you know, into that party. You know, I remember in Michigan back in the 60s when the Republicans crossed over in the Democratic primary and voted for George Wallace and sent him to the Democratic, you know, I mean, he actually won Michigan in large part because of Republican crossover votes because Michigan had open primaries. And well, let's put it this way. If, if, look, if you want to pick the Democratic Party's candidate, you should be in the Democratic Party. But that's, a, that's a philosophical issue. The right. practical issue is that if you want to vote in the Democratic primary in California, forget the urban myth that it's easy to vote in that primary if you're an independent. Today or tomorrow, you're going to have to re-register as a Democrat or bring in that physical no party preference ballot if you're saying where is the presidential primary by the way in california you do get the the congressional races the local races the referenda but millions literally 3.7 million people were mailed ballots without the presidential candidates bring that into the polling station with the envelope say i want again you have to have the magic word crossover democratic party ballot or re-register as a democrat for the day yeah Okay, sounds like a plan. Greg Palast, uh, gregpalast.com is the uh, website, and I know you've got a, a, a little video about this up, don't you? Over yes, your I website. have a video to show you how it's done and how to set your vote at gregpalast.com. There you go, gregpalast.com, P-A-L-A-S-T. Greg, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking with you. You're the best, Tom. Thanks. Back at you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Harbin. Uh, This is from chapter one, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. 
The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. Embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election, torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B, and it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example. The main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up. And other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. and Mark Pocan, who will be taking your calls. So whatever topic you want to talk about with Congressman Pocan, feel free to give us a shout and get in line. Congressman Pocan is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website is pocan, P-O-C-A-N.house.gov, and you can tweet him at rep, as in representative, rep Mark Pocan. Mark is spelled M-A-R-K. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Thanks. Glad to be here. Great to have you. I understand that you were in a briefing by the administration about the coronavirus uh, possible pandemic. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so actually it was my Labor Human Services Education Subcommittee for the Appropriations. We had Secretary Azar there. And I got to tell you, you I'm not incredibly impressed with the White House response to this. There are people all over the board from people like uh, Larry Kudlow saying it's contained and Secretary Wilbur Ross saying this is good for U.S. business to people saying this Homeland Secretary yesterday said uh, in a, several months that have a vaccine, but we're being told by CDC and others it's going to be 18 months. People are all over the board, and the fact that they don't seem to have a central place for this messaging makes me a, a little concerned on what their efforts exactly are. They, they're more worried about the stock market than they are, I think, the virus. And I actually asked the Secretary outright would he be willing to transfer some of the money they stole for the wall 
and put that towards this. And he said, no, they wouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, the wall's not going to stop the coronavirus, much less, I think, migration. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that something that provides some clarity. But right now, I don't see clarity coming out of the administration. Was there any discussion about how in 2018, the Trump administration kicked out uh, Rear Admiral Tim Zimmer? He was the senior director for global health security on the National Security Council. They went on to quote, and this is from the New York Times, eliminate the position and the NSC's entire global health security unit, end quote. And then they forced out Tom Bossert, a highly regarded expert who is Zimmer's counterpart at DHS, at the Department of Homeland Security, so that, again, quote, this is uh, quoting from uh, Foreign Policy magazine, quote, neither the National Security Council nor the DHS Department of Homeland Security epidemic teams have been replaced. There's literally nobody in the Trump administration who has any experience with epidemic diseases. They have shut down the two major agencies or whatever you call them, committees within the NSC and the Department of Homeland Security and replaced their people. He slashed funding for the CDC's epidemic act activities. He tried to decimate funding for the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. You guys stopped that in the House and the Senate. But instead, now he's not replaced any of the members who have quit or resigned or retired. And as a result, that Public Health Service is operating at two-thirds you know, of its staff. And the CDC, which you'd think is in charge of this, is not in charge of this. In fact, they recommended that those uh, Americans with the Wuhan virus who were brought back to the United States not be brought back. The CDC recommended that, but they were overruled by Mike Pompeo in the State Department, who has, to the best of my knowledge, no knowledge, no experience whatsoever with epidemic diseases. I mean, was that part of the discussion? Yeah, actually, I brought up about Rear Admiral Timothy Zemer. I brought up about the CDC cutting 80% of their global health security initiative. So now they're in about a fifth of the countries they were in at one point trying to deal with global health. Uh, brought up uh, the fact that the FDA has said there could be 150 prescription drugs at risk or shortage if the outbreak worsens, and yet the FDA commissioner isn't part of the task force that's planning the U.S. response. We brought up all of these inconsistencies, and that's the problem, whether it be a variety of messages coming from different cabinet secretaries, to what you've just laid out and I laid out this morning, there is not a coordinated effort at the White House. And so it was leaked from Politico that they're going to point to Czar, and Secretary Azar said, no, that's not true. He doesn't believe that. Well, if it turns out that happens and the Secretary supposed to be in charge of this right now didn't even know, I mean, this is a cluster of the greatest proportion. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Was the hearing bipartisan? Did you have Republican colleagues in the room with you? And if so, how did they react? Yeah, they generally praised the White House response dealing with the coronavirus, but greatly criticized where they try to steal the funding. Like stealing funding from Ebola would be a serious error. And that was a bipartisan response with the exception of, I think, one Republican. People brought that up. I recently talked to someone fairly high up in the administration, I think in the last year, and they mentioned one of the top two things they're working on is Ebola. That's one of their concerns. So stealing money from that to fund this instead of the wall doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we had a lot of conversations about that fascinating stuff. Well, let's get to our callers here. Again, Congressman Mark Pocani is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the state of Wisconsin and is taking your calls. Todd in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Todd, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom. Hey. My question is, is, I keep hearing this thing going around, the idea of electability. You know, I'm more electable, I'm more electable. Is it really that big of a deal if everybody just votes blue? That, that's no, you're right. Question. I mean, that, I think for many of us, Todd, that's our biggest message is that whoever gets the nomination is going to be better than Donald Trump. However, in a primary season, if you can pick the person who is best equipped to not only lead on the right values, people like I would argue, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, other progressives, or also have the ability to beat Donald Trump, I think that's real important. In fact, I saw... Nancy Pelosi made a comment, and I, I was really happy to see that she would be comfortable with Sanders on top of the ticket, because there were a couple Democrats who said they were concerned about that. You know, the way I look at it is the majority of people agree with progressives, whether it be the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, raising the minimum wage of $15, go down the list of progressive values, and those are all 60 to 80 percent issues. I think when people don't vote often because they don't feel like it really believes that their vote is wasted, and that's what we saw the Russians trying to do when they interfered in our elections in 2016, is try to convince people their vote is wasted. If we have a nominee who talks to those values strongly, I think that person wins. And you know in Wisconsin, 
we had a 250,000 Dem voter drop-off because people weren't inspired enough to get out to vote. We have to really prove that we believe these things and we'll get people out to vote. And that's how you win elections. So personally, as a progressive, I believe Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, most closely mirror those values. I've endorsed Bernie Sanders because I saw what he did in Wisconsin in 2016 when he won 71 out of 72 counties and got 72% of the vote of independents, 73% of young voters, two key constituencies. But we just got to really talk to the issues that people talk about at their kitchen table. They're concerned about not having health care, that they can afford their mortgage or rent. We need to talk about those sorts of issues, and if we do that, I think we're going to be victorious. Bottom line is, we're going to support, I think, someone who's going to defeat Donald Trump. I think right now that person is looking like it could be Bernie Sanders, and I think that that will help bring out young voters and independents as well as the Democratic base, and that's the way to win elections. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see a base election. The Democratic Party has not run one basically since 1964. Yeah. So I'd love to and see it. I think it. it will bring out a lot of voters, and that's the test to be really, I think. There you go. I'm with you. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's your media support group for We the People. Talk media for the sane left among us. I think our numbers are growing, actually. Tom Hartman Program. Paul in Ashland, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, Paul. I am calling to ask Congressman Pokan if he thinks that the chief executive should be subject to indictment under the Uniform Code of Military Justice so that this Justice Department memo that prevents indictment of an outlaw president can be essentially disregarded because we're currently under attack by enemies foreign and domestic. And since the chief executive has attacked our military and our intelligence services, I would think that the UCMJ would be the most direct way to remove an outlaw because he's the commander-in-chief of the military that's fascinating uh, congressman have you ever heard that the commander-in-chief the president is subject to the uniform code of military justice i've never heard that idea but it's a fascinating one yeah no i have not heard that paul i can tell you though if any of that would require the senate i think we've seen where the senate's going to fall mm. you know they're going to decide that they're going to stick with their party over their country and so, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a partner in the Senate at many of these efforts. I think we do have six committees that are doing oversight over the president. They're going to continue to do their work. But it's an interesting proposition, Paul, and I'd have to take a closer look at it. Barbara in Chicago Heights, Illinois, watches us on YouTube. Barbara, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Congressman Pocan. Hi. My question is about Tom broke the possibility that Trump could try to steal the election by having states validated, the vice president having the constitutional right to declare or nullify, Tom could explain it better than I can, the results of the election, and then the House of Representatives would end up voting for the president, and since there are only 50 states and the House of Representatives, Republicans have more states than they are Democratic states, the election can be stolen. Yeah, I laid this out a couple of days ago, and Barbara yeah. did a really good job of recapping it, that basically an election has to be certified by the vice president, by the president of the Senate. And we saw this in the election of 1876, although the vice president then had just recently died, so it was different, a different senator was the president, but he refused to certify the election. And this was Tilden Hayes. And so it, it should have gone to the states under the Constitution, but the Republicans and Democrats worked out a compromise and came up with a 15-person commission who cut the deal that ended Reconstruction and put Hayes into office. But under the Constitution, if the vice president, if Mike Pence were to say, I'm not going to certify this election because it looks like there was fraud in Wisconsin or in Ohio or whatever, then it does go to the House of Representatives and each state has one vote. And I believe there's 32 Republican-controlled states. Um, you know. I guess we'll have to talk about it on the other side of the break. Barbara, thank you for that. I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't watching the clock. But, Congressman, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Here on the Tom Hartman Program, helping you win the water cooler wars, the place where despair is not an option. Stick around. We'll be right back on the Tom Hartman.
program. Carol uh, was just calling uh, Congressman Pocan and pointing out in Florida in the 2000 election, the, the Republican-controlled Florida legislature passed legislation which never got enacted because the Supreme Court intervened that would have required all of Florida's electoral votes to go for George W. Bush, regardless of the outcome of the vote. Uh, states have that legal authority. And if the vice president refuses to certify the election, as Pramila Jayapal begged Joe Biden to do in the 2016 election, I believe it was. Yeah, it was. If the vice president refuses to certify the election, then the vote goes to the House of Representatives, which, and each state gets one vote. There's 50. I believe 32 of the states are Republican controlled. That would put Trump in office regardless of the popular vote, regardless of the Electoral College vote. Congressman, are you hearing anything about this? I'm I have actually heard this scenario or variations on this scenario from two different Republican consultants in the last two months. Yeah, Tom, I think to me it falls into there's probable and possible, right? I think with Donald Trump, anything is possible, unfortunately, because we've seen it from him. But probable, it would be, I still think, somewhat difficult given that I don't think the American people would stand for something like that and I think would have some ability to fight back. But any scenario with this president, as we know, when he asks foreign leaders for help, everything else that's never been done before, I wouldn't put past him, but I do think he would face a lot of resistance. Yeah. I mean, Bill Maher and I have been asking the question, what if he re loses and refuses to leave office? I think yeah. I'm increasingly thinking, particularly after talking to these conservative uh, consultants, political consultants, that, you know, Congress can give him the vote or individual states. I mean, you know, if you've got a state that has it's up to the legislature of the states in the Constitution, not the governor. So Wisconsin, your legislature is, contro legislature is controlled by the Republicans. If they vote to give Wisconsin's electoral votes, all of their electoral votes, to Trump, regardless of the outcome of the vote in Wisconsin, they have the legal authority to do that. It's right there in the Constitution. And as I said, it's been done before, and they almost did it in Florida in 2000. They actually passed that vote. So uh, there's there's some I have some concern, but anyhow, yeah. we'll hope for the best. Dennis in Crystal River, Florida, you're on the Earth Congressman Pocan. Yeah, I have one question. To make the voting legal, why don't we go back to paper ballots? <laughs> Great question, it's Congressman. Probably, yeah, Dennis, I'll tell you that part of HR one addresses some of this. You know, I've been a long advocate to make sure that you have a paper ballot no matter what, including the touchscreen ballots that we have. You still have a receipt, so you can have a verifiable count, and that is some of the language that we have in H.R. 1. That is my language that was put into the bill that we passed out of the House that Mitch McConnell has not taken up and will not take up in the Senate. So you're right. That would be a simple, common-sense way to make sure that we don't have some future problems with someone trying to hack into a system. Jim, and uh, is it Kapa'ua, Hawaii? I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, you're close, Tom. Kapa'au. Kapa there, there you go. Okay, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, hey, thanks for what you guys do. Mr. Pocan, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of yours. Thanks to Tom. But I have a concern and a question that with the apparent inevitability of the coronavirus spreading, and I see this playing right into the hands of Trump with the respect of declaring a state of emergency, maybe right around the election time. What can you do as a legislator to, to ensure that he doesn't use that state of emergency or that to, to even create more chaos and make more of a problem around the election time? This is very concerning to me that, you know, that his ability to do that and then just the fact that there's totally unprepared for the coming of this virus. And let me add, does the, does the Patriot Act, in fact, give him the ability during a time of emergency to suspend elections? My understanding is it does, but I've heard conflicting answers. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to find out on that last one, Tom. I can tell you that right now they were supposed to have a markup in the judiciary on the FISA provisions of the Patriot Act reauthorization, and I think they may be pulling it. That's going to be reauthorized very soon, and we have some strong concerns. We'd like to make it much better than it is right now. To Jim's point, on the first one, Jim, I mean, it's a hypothetical, and it's really hard to to answer hypotheticals, not knowing what could happen. But let me say this. While you have the White House surrogate Rush Limbaugh saying the coronavirus is nothing more than the common cold, real professionals like Dr. Fauci, who we all respect, said it's inevitable at CDC, has said it's not a question, which is why we hope there is a more coordinated response than we've seen out of the White House. Right now, uh, they're more worried about the stock market, I think, than they are dealing with this as a health crisis. And I would add on top of all this, Tom, we could have a great conversation sometime about the amount of prescription drugs and essential ingredients for prescription drugs that are produced in China 
that should this situation grow, we could have a shortage here. And um, that's something that FDA has even pointed out, 150 drugs, that they're worried about potentially having this happen. I just read a book called China Rx that lays this out. So my concern, Jim, right now is let's make sure that we are getting a smarter, better, medically-based approach towards dealing with this in the United States. We need more coordination, so I hope they do something to make it more coordinated than what it currently is. And we need to deal with it as a health crisis, not as an economic crisis and worry about the stock market over the health aspects of this, because right now I think that's what Donald Trump is thinking about. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. And with regard to the drugs, I contacted my physician. I take a blood pressure medication. Louise takes a thyroid medication. We contacted our doc, and he said, yes, this is a problem. These are, Both these medications are made in China. And so he gave us prescriptions for 90-day supply and wrote for vacation travel on it, yeah. which causes the health insurance companies to actually pay for it and pay for 90-day supply. Typically, you can't get a 90-day supply. You know, and I think probably people all around the country should be doing that, you know, get ready. This supply chain could be interrupted. And I don't think that's hysteria, Congressman. No, no, this is real. And China Rx lays it out. Well. To the Tom yeah. Hartman program. Yeah, this is real. Congressman Mark Pokan taking your calls. Jim in Denver, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Pokan. Yes, Tom. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I think we talked about this, not you and I, but I, Article 14. When representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their numbers, and if they're not allowed to vote, you know, as of uh, gerrymandering and voter suppression, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion to which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens. And, you know, could we use that to get uh, some of the representatives kicked out in these red states that do the voter suppression? Yeah, and, uh, Brian Kemp uh, kicked eight, 580,000 people off the voting rolls. Uh, Greg Palast and the BBC proved that at least 340,000 of them were still Georgia residents, still living at the same place. Uh, according to the 14th Amendment, Georgia should have lost a member of the House of Representatives as a consequence of that. Has anybody ever seriously taken that up? I haven't seen the proposal introduced to take that up. I can tell you, though, that there are many efforts uh, looking at redistricting right now, led by uh, groups including Eric Holder's organization that Barack Obama's involved with, trying to make sure we're addressing this so we don't have this. But I can tell you, in Wisconsin, we just had a, there's a court case right now pending over a couple hundred thousand votes that could be purged. Some of those people voted in 2016, and they're trying to purge them um, off the record, and that is currently in litigation. So any of these efforts that we see come from Republicans to try to pick voters uh, rather than voters picking their elected officials are problematic, and we have to fight them everywhere, and we are fighting them everywhere, and thankfully there are organizations doing just that. Jim, listening on KPFK out of L.A. You're in Atwater, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. Congressman, could you uh, introduce a bill, basically steal my votes and go to jail? Vote counters and poll workers must be warned. Election fraud will put you in jail. Two poll workers in Pennsylvania went to jail for stealing votes, one for 14 years. They must be warned. Yeah, Jim, I, I think you just did it. You know, people can't do efforts that block your ability to vote. The only thing I will say, and we haven't talked about this in a long time, Tom, is there is a constitutional amendment that I had introduced previously to give us a constitutional right to vote because there is not an explicit right to vote. It is certainly implied in the Constitution. We talk about discrimination in voting in the Constitution, but we do not have an explicit right to vote. And I think someday that would be an important issue for people to be taking. Yeah, the way I explain that is, you know, if Florida or Michigan or, you know, name your state wants to take away your gun, they have to go to court. They have to jump through all kinds of hoops. They have to prove that you're, you're crazy or dangerous to yourself or others. There's all these things that states have to do in order to take away a person's gun. But if you want to, if a state wants to take away your vote, they don't even have to tell you. They can just and do it. If you it had a constitutional right, they would have to, the burden is on them not on you to prove that they violated your right. And that exactly changes right. the dynamic. Exactly right. Michael in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Congressman, thank you for your work. Tom, always thank you for your work. It's self-evident that uh, this needs to be the largest, the absolute largest turnout in Democratic voters of my lifetime, certainly. And there are some amazing 
progressives running and that folks need to get behind whoever the Democratic nominee is. But y'all have been talking about and people have been asking about martial law because of coronavirus or what Trump may or may not do when he loses and saying we'll have to see what happens. But I don't think that without there being some preparedness on someone's part, that if this scenario plays out, that there needs to be some places that people can go. And it, uh, do you have anything, Tom or Congressman, that you can illuminate the listeners to of where we might go if things go south? And thank you both again. Yeah, Michael, I think, first of all, you might be um, a little early on that, right? I mean, we know and we're learning from watching other countries' responses, some good, some not as strong, and what we may need to do here. So I, I don't think we're quite at that hypothetical situation yet. There's not like a place to go. But I do think there's some common sense things that, you know, as you keep, continue to see what other countries are doing and responding, that we should do. And I think you know, just being personally vigilant and making sure we have the proper response nationally, which is what I'm going to try to do, uh, is the best we can do at this point. Stan in Wanawak, Wisconsin, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you, Tom, and uh, I'm a very proud constituent of uh, uh, Representative Pocan. wondered if he could make a comment on the hysteria concerning Bernie's potential candidacy and what it will do to the down-ticket races. We hear all these doomsday scenarios about losing the House and losing the Senate. And if uh, I'm looking back to 2016 and the race in Wisconsin when Russ Feingold was running against a pretty vulnerable Johnson for a Senate seat, and uh, he lost that seat. And I always wondered if he might not have done better if he'd had a better candidate at the top of the ticket. Would you like to respond? Sure. I think the first thing I'd say is what Nancy Pelosi actually said, which is she's comfortable with Sanders on the ticket. So if you've got the person who is uh, literally responsible for keeping the House majority saying uh, it's not a problem, I think people should listen to her and maybe chill out a bit because it's not a problem. Secondly, I would argue anyone who can increase the turnout of young voters and independents to vote along with the Democratic base expands the amount of the electorate that are voting Democratic is a good thing, and that's what people like Bernie Sanders do by talking about progressive values. So I think that gets taken care of. And just to your final point, you know, when we had a 250,000 Dem voter drop-off in Wisconsin in 2016, that's what cost Russ Feingold being elected to the Senate. You know, every poll showed him up to Election Day. It's only because of the depressed turnout that we had that he lost that day, and we can't have that happen in Wisconsin or anywhere. Brian in Lake Worth, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, uh, Congressman Pocan. It's a pleasure to speak with you. My question is, why isn't President Trump or any other president that finds himself in this situation considered to be illegitimate president because he was put in office with assistance from a foreign country? Thank you. Yeah, Brian, I mean, you know, I think we as a country have lived through the Mueller report, through all these other things that showed uh, clearly, without question, the Russians interfered in our elections with the goal of electing Donald Trump. Right now, they're going to get involved again, and much of what they're doing is just trying to create discord so that people don't come out to vote. Ultimately, that does help Republicans when fewer people come out to vote. And I think many of us think people should be more concerned when you have a foreign influence coming in and trying to affect elections. But somehow Republicans have decided as long as uh, he continues to provide tax cuts for the really, really rich people, they're going to keep funding the campaigns as long as he says he's against a woman's choice about her body than certain other people are going to follow. And he has built a coalition of people who um, also uh, support his racist views. And out of that, people are willing to look the other way. Uh, unfortunately for him, I don't think it's going to be a majority of people. And that's why we have to be very vigilant and active for November. Michael, at Hammond in Indiana, we have 50 seconds left. If you can ask a question in 20 seconds, go for it. Oh, absolutely. Can Bernie Sanders really get his programs through Congress? Great question. Yeah, great question, Michael. A part of it is about all of us building the same movement that he's using to get elected. We need to build across the country. So if you don't listen to your constituents that they want health care, you may not be in office anymore. So it's really going to be our grassroots movement that we are building right now that's going to get this done. There are plenty of special interests and well-connected folks in D.C., in the Beltway, that don't want to see these happen because they make a lot of money with the current system. We're fighting against that, but people power will always be stronger than that power 
if we all are active and, and work for these efforts. So I do believe that we can make these things real, but it's going to take the work of every single one of us. There you go. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for the great work you're doing in the U.S. House of Representatives, for the great work you're doing as the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I know our listeners love the whole national town hall meeting that we have every week here. Thank you so much. No, glad to do it, Tom. Thank you. Congressman Mark Pocan, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Tell him hi for us. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.